0: You are listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is the globalist I am Markus Hippi coming up. The West is promising increased support for Ukraine to help it survive the cold winter, but there are concerns about war fatigue building up amongst Kiev Western allies as the war continues. In Brazil, the country's president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has been naming his new government. We ask what that tells about the future direction of the country's politics. We'll also take a look at the latest unrest at the disputed border between China and India in the eastern Himalayas. And a bit later, we'll cross over to Tallinn to meet the founder of one of Estonia's most successful
1: startups. We have a fleet of about 1,700 robots. So that sort of scale is also a big milestone. All that's plus a look at the day's papers and the week's top
0: fashion news that is set on The Globalist live from London. Some 70 countries and institutions have promised Ukraine over a billion euros in aid to help the nation survive the cold winter. Meanwhile, EU member states have agreed on an 18 billion euro financial aid package for Ukraine, and G7 nations have also pledged increased support to bolster Kyiv's air defense capabilities. Joining me now to unpack the state of global unity on the war in Ukraine is Alona Livko, a political Consultant and former Ukrainian MP, and Michael Binion, a foreign affairs specialist for The Times. Welcome to the program. Alona, if I may come to you first, could you first tell us what you think about all these promises? How significant are they? Billions of euros from the West and also G7 promising to offer more support to Ukraine air defenses.
2: Hi, Marcus, and thank you. Um, of course, the ongoing and continuing support for Ukraine is extremely important in the circumstances that the country is facing now. As you can see, the winter is kicking in and our energy infrastructure is being hurt the most. People are left to sit without electricity, without heating very often. Um, Every three hours um, there are blackouts across the country. So the situation is quite dire in the country, and every support we can get these days is most appreciated and, of course, most effective. It's very nice to see that the world still stands by Ukraine and uh, that there is no actual fatigue kicking in in terms of of helping Ukraine to survive this difficult time, because it's not just supporting the energy infrastructure and providing temporary as well as permanent support in that sense, but also supplying the air defense system, which are crucial to prevent the destructions from happening.
0: How much concern is there in, in Ukraine about the country's allies possibly getting tired as the war drags on? There are some voices in the West already getting concerned about increasing energy prices and the cost of living, and they're suggesting that maybe Ukraine should somehow be more active in, in seeking for peace.
2: Well, it is, of course, concerning uh, for Ukrainians, but that concern has been there. It's been settling since the beginning from the war. When is the world going to... Um, stop helping us because we understand that that help is crucial, um, not just from the United States who are supplying the most weapons to Ukraine, but also from the rest of the world. Uh, there's training programs for military, there's uh, financial aid that helps us uh, pay all the budget op- obligations and pay out pensions and to the vulnerable and support the population generally, as well as you know help with all all ongoing crises that the country is facing. So certainly everyone is really concerned that the winter is going to be difficult, not just for Ukraine and the rest of the world. But we are definitely hoping that, and, and I think we're seeing that, that the world can see that Ukraine is struggling the most. We are taking that first major hit from Russia and we're holding that ground for the rest of Europe, not just for ourselves, because as soon as russia if god forbid it swallows ukraine it's not going to stop there and i think it's finally the time when the world has realized that and the g7 countries have realized that that they need to support ukraine to help protect themselves in the future
0: well let's 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 look at what's what's happening with supplying weapons to ukraine michael you have been following the debates in the uk in particular over supplying weapons to ukraine can you unpack this for us what kind of different opinions are there about that
3: Well, support is still fairly robust in Britain, and uh, only a few days ago, Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, was calling for uh, long-range missiles to be supplied to Ukraine. And uh, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said uh, that he's still thinking about that, but he certainly didn't dismiss it out of hand. This, of course, is quite a difficult issue because uh, long-range missiles would be able to attack targets inside Russia. And in fact, there have been several attacks on military bases. Uh, These missiles can be supplied by most NATO countries, in particular the United States. And the Americans have also indicated that, in principle, they're quite willing to supply these kind of weapons, which would be important in harassing the bases from where these bombing raids uh, begin in Russia. Uh, Some have already hit deep into Russian territory, you know, 400 miles or 400 kilometers rather from the Ukrainian border. Uh, and I think Britain is ready to go along with such an idea, as well as encouraging other NATO countries to continue their regular supply of air defence uh, weapons and other, other crucial, uh, crucial weapons that would stop these attacks.
0: So, so do you think the West will, will eventually give Ukraine longer-range weapons, and if so, when does it actually happen?
3: I think the West will uh, supply longer-range weapons. I think uh, the key thing is uh, the Ukrainians would really like the latest version of American drones. These are very smart drones that can stay in the air for 24 hours and can fire multiple uh, rockets or missiles from uh, hovering over these bases. Uh, And that would be uh, their, their ideal wish. The Americans are still a bit reluctant on that one, but certainly they can supply some of the things that Ukraine needs. And with The proviso that these are not used against civilians or there are no targeted assassinations, I think these weapons will be forthcoming in the future. Michael, what
0: is your feeling at the moment? How long will this kind of global support for Ukraine last? Is is there any signs of of war fatigue in, in the Western countries?
3: Well, there certainly is some sign of war fatigue in that the the issue sort of rather disappeared out of the headlines. I mean, it comes back from time to time. Uh, People see pictures of, you know, Ukrainians uh, without heating or food or, uh, you know, support uh, in these ruined villages. And then there's an upsurge of sympathy. But the fact is that most Western countries at the moment are preoccupied by their own problems of economic decline, uh, inflation, uh, cost of living rising and these sort of things strikes in Britain for example. Uh, So the issues rather disappeared off the front pages. Uh, I think there's also a certain feeling that isn't it time that some sort of talks got going? Uh, Military analysts are more realistic. They say, well, this is absolutely out of the question. As long as uh, Russia is still uh, targeting Ukraine and targeting civilians, what might happen is there could be some sort of de facto ceasefire. There will be no peace negotiations. Neither side has any wish to enter into a a talking uh, session with each other. But it could end up rather like a sort of uh, North-South Korea situation with a very tense, fragile ceasefire agreement, which could be broken at any moment.
0: Alona, do you think this would be what may happen next that we see this kind of de facto ceasefire Michael was talking about?
2: Well, I think we have a sad experience of two ceasefire agreements that were previously achieved and signed in 2014 and 15, the Minsk one and Minsk two, which never really went anywhere and didn't provide um, any substantial peace or resolution to the situation. and Russia kept breaking the ceasefire agreement, kept shelling Ukrainian positions and villages and towns and civilians as they do now. So there is absolutely no guarantee. And on the contrary, there is a guarantee that Russia will keep targeting our civilian infrastructure, looking at what they're doing now, despite any agreements for ceasefire or truce that we sign. And I don't think it's sustainable to say that Russia and Ukraine can turn into some sort of North or South Korea simply because it's not going to be sustainable in that sense. We are talking about the center of Europe and we're talking about a massive, big country like Russia, who is an aggressor and who simply will not stop at what it achieves with Ukraine. And and on the other hand, of course, the, the Western countries are getting tired and they would like Ukraine to reach some sort of agreement. And trust me, there's nothing more that we would like to see than st- stopping this war and stop seeing our children and women getting killed while they're at home trying to live their normal lives. Sadly, that's not the not the luxury that we have. It's not something on the table that can be provided. So the only tenable resolution to this situation is to defeat Russia as, you know, as banal as it sounds and maybe as unrealistic as it sounds now, there's definitely a prospect for that. And um, we don't have the luxury to give up and give in because simply Ukraine will cease to exist. And we are already seeing uh, Russia using the harsh winter that the West is facing. And even yesterday on Russian state-owned TV channels, they were saying about, you know, Westerners, and especially English people, who seem to be their number one target because they're supporting Ukraine um, so robustly. They were saying that English people can no longer afford to have a cup of tea at work, which is completely ridiculous. But they're definitely trying to capitalize on these moods. And that's why it's another reason not to give in to them.
0: In, in in loosely related developments, alone, I have to ask what your thoughts are about what we're hearing now in regards to the 2024 Paris Olympic Games. The US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, for example, is backing the idea to include Russian and Belarusian athletes in the competition. What do you think about that?
2: Well, again, seeing how the West has imposed sanctions on Russia after the 2014 initial invasion of Ukraine, and how they slowly but surely pulled out of all the sanctions and Council of Europe then cancelled all of the sanctions on Russia, I don't think that this is acceptable at all. And I understand that we are talking about athletes, people who have put their lives down to a career and dedicated all of their efforts and time to turning that into their life path. But sadly, there is a, a shared and common responsibility for all Russian citizens for the war. It has to do with all the sanctions, not just the sanctions on sports people and Olympic participants. Um, every single citizen in Russia now is suffering from the sanctions that have been imposed on the country, but they need that's the only way that they could realize that their state is doing something wrong and they finally need to wake up and to stand up against that.
0: Elena Livgo and Michael Binion, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. We turn to Brazil next. That's where the country's president-elect, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, has unveiled the first members of his cabinet, including his chief of staff and finance minister. Meanwhile, supporters of the outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, have clashed with police in Brasilia. Protesters reportedly attempted to invade police headquarters and set fire to vehicles. Joining me here in the studio to unpack this is Monaco's senior Respondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Regular listeners will know that Fernando is a Brazilian native. Good morning to you, Fernando. Shall we start with the news about the new cabinet? What do we know now?
4: Well, uh, we have, you know, five very big positions have been filled already, uh, including Fernando Haddad, the former mayor of São Paulo, as finance minister. Uh, Rui Costa, as well, who is, which is a former governor, as a chief of staff. And from the names we had so far, those those. initial five names, Marcos, you can see that Lula went for people that are really loyal to him. Uh, And again, a lot of members of the Workers' Party, I think it's actually a very good list. But, I w- but there's been a few criticisms here and there because the first five names, there were basically five men. And, and there's been this hope uh, with Lula being the president that there will be more uh, women ministers or even black ministers as well. So I think we should expect a new kind of set of announcements by the end of this week. Our new culture minister, she is Margarete Menezes, uh, a very famous singer from the 80s. You know, I really like her music. It's a share, which is kind of a very fun, uh, kind of a danceable rhythm uh, from the region of Bahia. And again, Lula likes to appoint an artist or a singer like this for this position as culture minister. But I am waiting for the other positions as well. And I hope to see more women
0: there. Fernando, what do you think these appointments we know so far tell us about the future of
4: politics in Brazil? It, it says that Lula wants a very steady government. There hasn't been many surprises, I have to say, uh, which in a way is a good thing, uh, because you know uh, you see names like Fernandade, Rui Costa, uh, even Flavio Gino as justice minister. Those are names that Brazilians know, and they've been you know governors before, so they are known a little bit uh, by the public as well. So yes, uh, extremely loyal uh, names uh, towards Lula. In, in other news, we have now seen some unrest in the
0: country. As I mentioned already earlier, supporters of the outgoing president Jair Bolsonaro have been clashing with police in the capital, Brasilia. How much can you tell us about the scale of this unrest?
4: Yes, I mean, first of all, I have to say it, it, it's a small number of fanatical Bolsonaro supporters, but they do cause a lot of noise uh, you know some of them they try to kind of uh, storm the federal police headquarters in in Brazil's capital Brasilia you know they some some of them torched cars in the streets it's it's been an ugly ugly scenes definitely in the capital but I have to say it's been a botched attempt so they didn't have that power so I do to be honest, Marcos, I mean people keep saying, "Is it going to happen the same thing that happened in the u s on the sixth of January?" I mean it could have very well happened, but let 's remember they are very much a minority. I think the bolsonarismo, the people that support bolsonaro is very much a large number of the country, almost half but But the type of people that go to the streets and have this level of radicalism. You know, I I wouldn't say, uh, you know, I probably is just around ten percent, or, or or perhaps even less than that.
0: What do you think unites these people who are on the streets over there, and who are the most passionate supporters of of Jair Bolsonaro? How
4: much are their conspiracy theories? What what are they actually fighting for? I mean, they, they are. It's mad. It's just crazy. Some people say in the Brazilian press that they are, you know, you should treat them almost as a terrorist cell instead of just saying that they are Bolsonaro supporters because. You know, we have to be frank here. I mean, not all Bolsonaro supporters will do such a thing as well. And, of course, Bolsonaro's reaction... Has a lot to be said. He's been very quiet, Marcus, You know, since he lost the election. Uh, I think recently he said that the reason for it, the result, hurts his soul. And, and and I know it sounds funny, but yet it's literally he's been very very sad with the fact that he lost. And he's been very monosyllabic when when he appears. You know, in front of the public, he doesn't say very much. He's not looking that well as well. It it really I think probably he was surprised by the fact that he lost. What do you think? He's future is going to be like? I mean, it's 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 hard to say because, I mean, as I said, I think suddenly his, his, his power diminished. And I wonder if one of his kids might become this new front for the Bolsonarismo movement. I mean, he does have quite a lot of that and they're all in the world of politics. I wonder if they have the same strength as his dad. But yes, the, the, the far right in Brazil is definitely not uh, dead. But I have to say, What I see from Bolsonaro in recent days is a very quiet man, very sad. As he said, the result hurts his soul.
0: But this movement still has that power. Do you think we might see the return of far-right eventually?
4: I mean it's 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 very hard to say and that would depend on lula and again lula promised to be a centrist guy i mean he didn't promise to be suddenly the leftist back in brazil and that's why i'm anxiously awaiting for this new list of ministers because there are names like simone tabich as well she's a centrist senator that in my opinion she was pivotal for Lula's uh, victory. So if Lula includes someone like her in his cabinet, I think he would say to a lot of Brazilians, like, oh, you know, Lula is actually not only... You know, preaching to the converted. He's actually trying to get new votes as well. So I, I'm very curious to see uh, this list. So I, I want to see names like Simone Tabic and names that are outside of the workers party spectrum as well.
0: It's not a long wait anymore until Luis Inácio Lula da Silva actually takes the role of president. We're waiting for that to
4: happen. What do you think are the first things he has to tackle? Well, I'll, I'll be there actually on the 1st of January, which is, yeah, it's very funny. In Brazilian elections, the 1st of January, that's when you become the new president. Well, I think there are a lot of things to tackle. And of course, the main thing for Lula, he was always about kind of the poorest in society. He will make sure that our welfare program is kind of adjusted uh, to normal levels. I think that's going to be the first thing that he will pay uh, attention to it. And then, you know, Brazil—it it is a complex country. He's got a lot of work to do. Fernando, how optimistic are you now about the future direction of your home country? You know what? I am optimistic on a personal level. I'm very happy that Brazil will be back to the world stage. I mean, I've told this already here on Monaco 24, that when Lula won this, this election a few weeks ago, I mean, Emmanuel Macron, Joe Biden, everyone was, there was a huge call of people trying to call him as soon as possible. People were happy that Brazil will be a powerful voice once again, you know, because it's a big country. It, is, it deserves to be in this position as well. And, I, and so in that sense, I am a little bit optimistic. Fernando Augusto
0: Pacheco there, thank you for joining me today. You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle24. Still to come in the programme, we'll be looking at the latest clashes on the border of India and China and we'll be also getting the week's top fashion news. Stay tuned.
5: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to The Globalist with me, Marcus Hippie. Indian and Chinese troops sustained minor injuries on Friday in a clash at the country's disputed border in the eastern Himalayas. The incident, which was first reported on Monday, is the first known clash between the two Asian powers in nearly two years. 24 soldiers died during a similar escalation two years ago, and relations between the two countries remain frosty. I'm joined and now by Shruti Kapil, a professor of Indian history and global political thought at the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us how much is actually known about what happened last week?
6: Uh, Well, thank you. It's great to be back here. Um, Well, not much is known because the first uh, admission of uh, clashes has only been made really uh, today uh, in the Indian Parliament, uh, partly because there was a major uh, election going on in Prime Minister Modi's home state of Gujarat, where the BJP, the ruling party, won uh, a massive mandate. So part of it is actually politically timed, certainly in India, uh, to let the celebrations go on because the attack uh, took place on the 9th. Uh, and uh, what has been admitted is that th- there has been combat and there has been injury in not in uh, in the same area, which was in the Western Himalayas uh, in 2020 in Galwan, but in the more traditional flashpoint uh, between Chinese-Indian uh, tensions on the border in the Far Eastern Uh, border uh, in the Himalayas of Arunachal Pradesh.
0: How high up do you think this situation at that disputed border of of China and India is, is in the country's priority list? Are they trying to find solutions to finally address this issue and find answers?
6: Uh, From the Indian point of view, yes, very much so. This is very much a top strategic concern. In fact, India's foreign policy has a marked change, certainly since 2020, since the Galwan uh, attack, but it's it's, it's slightly longer in the making, given India's uh, traditional non-aligned policy has moved uh, a very, uh, very much so towards a kind of a, a pro-American, uh, not so much an alliance, but it, it it seems to be strategically more poised with America, which has also led uh, for the same reason in the last few years uh, an escalation of the border disputes. This is a, this is a long-standing uh, border dispute in 1962, India was defeated uh, by the Chinese, and also because there are tensions because of the Dalai Lama, i.e. the Tibetan um, monk, leader of the Tibetan Buddhists, who has refuge uh, in India all the way back since 1959. So uh, those, the, these are his, these, this is a historic uh, issue, not an overnight issue. But having said that, there is a step change now, and there is no sign of uh, disengagement. Uh, and India too has has a more hawkish uh, view on on the border dispute than it may have had earlier. The uh, the foreign foreign secretary of India, foreign minister of India is on record saying quite recently that these are not normal relations.
0: How do you think those relations could evolve? and, And what do you think could be happening at that border region? What do you expect from the future? Do you feel any optimism?
6: I'm afraid not. I do think Western observers uh, think very, very much are focused on uh, Taiwan as the key flashpoint for, 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 as it were, China. But really, the Indian story is really where it is at, uh, because partly because of the Indo-Pacific, which is a strategic area of concern for the evolving um, grand strategy in America, but also for other allies in the area. And India is a partner in that in 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 that story. But also India has therefore has a kind of massive border, Himalayan border, uh, which is much more a kind of bilateral issue. And the timing of the latest skirmish is comes right on the close heels of India's military exercise with the Americans, which just closed off. Uh, five days ago or last week. So I think this is a kind of, there'll be kind of low level coercion going on from the side of the Chinese uh, at the border, uh, plus a kind of story around uh, the Indo-Pacific and and the American um, unfolding of interests and uh, uh, partnerships uh, in that area. And I think India is not simply caught out, uh, but India is at the very center of this story and which is partly why, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi and, as it were, the, the Indian establishment has been incredibly coy. Uh, in sharing details because this is genuinely uh, 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 something that poses a major threat uh, to Indian Indian strategic thinking and defence.
0: Shruti, thank you very much for your insights. That was Shruti Kapila, Professor of Indian History and Global Political Thought at the University of Cambridge. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. <laughs> In the latest edition of our business show, the entrepreneurs, we crossed over to Tallinn to meet a co-founder and CTO of one of Estonia's most famous startups. Starship Technologies builds autonomous delivery robots that are designed to bring groceries, food and packages directly to customers.
1: I spoke to Ahdi Heinla, who was launching the business in 2014. As Starship Technologies, we are automating last mile delivery. We are delivering your groceries and food to your doorstep in the the suburban areas mostly. And uh, I think overall the automation of delivery is not a new idea, right? That wasn't actually the the Eureka moment to actually have that service in the first place. Like if you look at like science fiction movies, like, you know, whatever, you know, Minority Report or something like that, you don't see the UPS delivery guys or something, or DoorDash delivery guys, you have like flying cars and you know, things come to you by yourself. Like, so people have that idea. That wasn't the new idea. The new idea for us was that the realization that the delivery, an automated delivery vehicle or robot does not need to be like as big as a car, or even doesn't need to be like a flying car that it actually could be a small robot that drives on the sidewalk. And that's actually much easier to do, much lower cost to do. And costs are super important because there is no such thing as a luxury delivery service where you could charge like $50 for a delivery. It has to be low cost. The small size, the small energy consumption of the robot due to that was actually a key in, in achieving low cost. So the idea sounds really simple, creating small robots
0: that drive on the sidewalk. But actually, what are the the practicalities and how complicated does it
1: get when you actually try to create something like that? Right, it actually gets very complicated. It's just, I I would say, you know, we could have also thought that, hey, you know, self-driving cars are coming, you know, let's just use self-driving car technology and, you know, do deliveries using using these. But the problem was that, and still is, that self-driving cars are still not like in fully production you know, mode yet, and it looks to be uh, quite some time before. Actually, there's self-driving cars everywhere and millions of, of, the, of them rolling in a cost-effective way. We also had to build a whole autonomous driving technology. So this is overall a deep tech play. This is overall an autonomous driving robot. It's just that it's simpler than a car because it goes on the sidewalk, the speeds are lower. Most notably, the safety situation is a lot better than with the self-driving car, like I mean, what are the risks essentially? The risks are just much lower, the safety risks. You launched Starship Technologies 80
0: years ago, what have been the biggest milestones ever since?
1: The biggest milestones have been the first time we got the robot driving autonomously by itself, that was in, in 2016 or so, then also at approximately the same time we did our first commercial delivery, that was a big milestone because we were a company building, you know, autonomous driving robots, but then actually used it in, in the real world and have the first customer to actually, like, open the robot and see this. And this is sort of the wow moment of actually getting a delivery, not with a person, with, uh, with a delivery person, but with, uh, with a robot. That was a big milestone. And then, you know, right now we have, we have completed three and half million deliveries all in total. And we have a fleet of about 1700 robots. So that achieving that sort of scale is, is also a big milestone. Uh, of course, there is some big milestones also, also coming, like, you know, 3.5 million deliveries. Okay, it's a, it's a nice number. It's not a prototype anymore. It's a commercial service that really works. But it's still a small minority of the overall deliveries done in the world. We have a lot of scaling to do. We have, we have the world to take over. What are the
0: next steps then? Tell me where your focus is at the moment. You are present in, in a few countries
1: already. What are the next markets? And where do you see the company in about, say, five years' time? At five years time, definitely, I see the company in much, much bigger scale as it is right now. Right now, the situation is essentially that our service really works. It's a commercial service that you can rely on. And people who have access to our service, we've launched in about 30, 40 locations, and a couple of million people have access to our service. People who have access to our service, for them, this robot delivery is completely everyday matter. They see the robots all the time on the sidewalk and they know that you can use these robots to get deliveries. But people who do not have access to our service, still a lot of them seem to think that this is science fiction, this will happen in 20 years, you know, this doesn't work. It actually does work. It's actually a fully commercial service that really works. It's not like a gimmick or something like that. And as we get to bigger scale, Everybody will get to experience that. Shall we go into your offices where you actually
0: build these robots so we can continue discussion there? Right, I'm happy to, excited to, to show you things. So now we are in the offices and, and I, I see some of the robots are opened, what exactly is happening over here?
1: Uh, we are actually testing robots uh, before we, we ship them them out in the world and uh, we are manufacturing the robots ourselves and it's actually quite complicated in terms of hardware. There's loads of different components in the robots and uh, we are manufacturing testing them and we develop new hardware for the robots. There's actually lots of things that we need to do in our office. It's actually an office full of robots doing something, testing something, blinking lights and so forth.
0: Is it possible for you to try to paint a picture or give us some context or some understanding of how complicated these robots are from inside if you compare them to, say, your average laptop?
1: <laughs> your average laptop is, yeah, difficult difficult to, com- to compare. A laptop doesn't really have a lot of moving parts. Our robots obviously do have. The robot has actually hundreds of different parts. There are 10 cameras in the robot. There are you know, modems that we use to connect to the the mobile internet. There are motors inside the robot. There are six motors inside the robot. There's a battery in the robot. There's a compute unit. There are radars. There are ultrasonic sensors and so forth. All of them need to be also connected. So there's cables running around and uh, we are obviously also dealing with issues like you know what about the heating or does the inside of the robot get too hot in a hot day or th- things like that. There's loads of engineering that goes into the hardware of the robot.
0: Well Tallinn for example where we are does get rather warm. This summer has been
1: warm. Winters are cold regularly. How do these robots cope in the weather? The, uh, obviously we are, we are working on, on the thermal management as well and you know, actually our first prototype of a robot had a black lead on top of it. That's fine, maybe in this sort of northerly climate as Estonia and Finland are, where we actually developed and designed the robots, but it's not that good in like a more like Texas, for example, you know, when the sun is more like overhead and, uh, and the robots inside actually got, got really hot, so we switched to a white lead. Our robots right now, they can work actually in snow, they can work in hot days, uh, days and so forth, so we have f- figured out all of these issues. Then the obvious question many people, I heard already many people ask
0: this question, how much sabotage do come across. These robots look quite cute and they're driving all by themselves
1: in the suburbs. Does anything bad happen? (laughs) Yeah, everybody seems to think that these robots get stolen. They actually don't. I don't think we have actually had any single case where a robot has been stolen, you know, from the street, you know, while, while driving like that. People really accept the robots as part of their neighborhood and they take pride in these robots and they like the robots and they try to help the robots, you know, when they perceive that this robot, you know, needs some help or crossing the street or some, some, something like that. Of course, there are, there are people, people there that, that like to, you know, go and break things, but it doesn't really happen to our robots. It's not really an issue for us.
0: Ahti Heina, co-founder and CTO of Starship Technologies there. That was a highlight from the latest edition of our business show, The Entrepreneurs. The program's host, Tom Edwards, joins me in the studio. So that question Arti ah, was answering, do people ever steal those robots or try to damage them? You can't see them in London yet. And I think they would probably get stolen over here. Do you agree with me?
7: Oh, morning, Marcus. I don't know, to be honest. I think they are—they're very endearing looking, and the way they trundle around. I think they sort of tap into people's almost sort of a—I don't know—it's almost a parental responsibility. I love the idea of people hitting the, the crossing button so they can safely cross at the at the traffic lights. They're very affable-looking little things. Um, but yeah, London. Oh, I don't know. Probably too too early to say.
0: I noticed that in this episode of The Entrepreneurs, we had one Estonian business and, and another business that was from Sweden, if I remember correctly.
7: That's right. Well, we also heard from Robert Falk from Enride. So it, much as uh, Starship Technologies focus on you know the last mile, that local, super local delivery, um, Enride, uh, who've also featured in Monocle magazine in print as well, they're looking at a driverless, autonomous, electric future for freight. And obviously this is potentially seismic in terms of how it can reshape the whole of you know global supply chains. Virtually everything anywhere goes on a truck at some point. Uh, however joined up, however green and sustainable the rest of the supply chains are. So really interesting to get that sense of... Rebuilding and revolutionizing supply chains from the first to the last on the program last week.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're going to get a new episode of The Entrepreneurs a bit later today at 20:00 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. What's coming up? More great businesses from the Nordic region, for example.
7: Well, actually, yes, there is another, there's another Nordic business. It's actually called, Marcus, Nordic. Outdoor, I'm sure you've been there. Uh, Casper Odqvist, who set that up, and actually uh, the sort of MO, if you like, was to bring some great Nordic outdoors brands uh, to the UK. They've got a bigger footprint here now, Um, so I talked to him a little bit about that growth story. Um, The main chat's actually with Dr. Amanda Parks of uh, Pangaea. Really, really interesting. This is a company that is very innovative in terms of producing uh, great uh, luxury garments, But they use super innovative and sustainable uh, materials. So, how do you weave, for want of a better word, um, a business that is properly sustainable, super innovative? And actually, Amanda's really interesting because she's a, well, really, she's a materials scientist who's also fascinated by fashion. It's a really, really intriguing uh, interview, and I would urge. Listeners to the Globalist to tune in a bit later today. Sounds very good.
0: 20:00 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Tom Edwards, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. Welcome to the programme. A rather big announcement from the British Prime Minister last night. That's something that is widely written in the British newspapers. Now, about illegal immigration, what do you have?
5: Yes, that's right. So um, as The Times says here, uh, Rishi Sunak was setting out a five-point plan to curb channel migrants. And obviously, this is something that has been plaguing uh, British governments throughout the year and throughout you know, recent years. And it's obviously uh, the situation, particularly with small boats crossing the channel, uh, has got a lot more serious during the course of the year. So Rishi Sunak has promised MPs, as The Guardian reports here, um, that he will clear the backlog in asylum by the end of 2023. Um, and one of the main things that he has promised to do, he says he signed an agreement with the Albanian government that would speed up the removal of uh, people arriving from Albania. And he's saying that, well, you know, essentially that Albania is a safe European country, and people coming to the UK from Albania by illegal means should be uh, sent back. Uh, and also talking about trying to revive this policy of uh, sending people denied uh, refuge in the UK to Rwanda, which is something that you know. Know, previous prime ministers uh, have tried and it's been quite difficult. But it was quite interesting um, watching the statement from Rishi Sunak that he had certain uh, criticisms from, like, some of his predecessors, including Theresa May. And that was pointed out that, you know, he wants to talk about changing the modern slavery laws. And Theresa May uh, stood up to point out that, you know, this and trafficking were different things mm-hmm. and that it was very important that uh, modern slavery should still be cracked down on.
0: Well, as, as Terry, you pointed out, this is something that's been an issue for quite some time already. Do you think, is, is there much optimism around at the moment that that something that is decided over here could actually stop those small boats crossing the channel?
5: Well, I think uh, the Rishi Sunak government, I say, has probably got a slightly more constructive approach to it than some of the other more recent uh, prime ministers. I mean, in particular, they've, they've done deals with other countries. They are working more closely uh, together with France in particular. And one of the things they have to do as well is to try and find places to put people while their their claims are being processed now he says he's going to be able to do that much more quickly but he's also talking about things like um turning holiday former holiday camps former military bases former student halls of residence into centers for uh, asylum seekers And I can imagine that you know many uh, MPs who find those those centers in their constituencies might realize that they have uh, questions about that to say the least
0: we started this program by talking about support Ukraine is getting a bit. There's been a conference in, in Paris that has promised more than a billion euros in aid. You've been looking at Le Figaro.
5: Yes, Le Figaro has been devoting um, a lot of coverage to the situation in Ukraine, um, doing really essentially a special edition where they're talking about all of the issues there. And yes, they have picked up particularly on the importance of this international summit, uh, saying that already over a billion euros have been promised by uh, 70 countries and international organisations who were meeting in Paris. Uh, now, Vladimir Zelensky obviously wasn't joining the meeting in Paris, but he did give a speech um, by video link, and some other representatives from Ukraine were there themselves. And I think uh, one of the things that the figure points out, which is quite striking, is uh, when Emmanuel Macron launched this summit, he was talking really about uh, how important it is for Ukraine to be able to get through the winter, uh, talking about Russia's weaknesses on a military level, and calling this a cynical strategy by Russia to try to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure and just saying how important it was for for the rest of the world to try to keep this support for Ukraine going and obviously you know the, the finance is a very big part of that
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well let's talk about money a bit more and let's, let's cross over to what's been happening in Brazil's directions wow. obviously one of the biggest corruption scandals we've seen for quite some time in the EU Parliament you've been looking at newspapers and also yes. Politico what's being said.
5: Well this is um, a fascinating story obviously we don't know uh, everything about it yet but um, the Belgian paper Le Soir has a uh, got hold of images which look as though they come from some sort of uh, from the police force or somewhere uh, which literally show piles and piles of euros in front of a a federal police sign and according to the newspaper this is the cash in sort of heaps of 50 euro notes 100 euro notes they look like which uh, they say has been found uh, during these various raids that we have seen in Brussels Um, and now obviously one uh, MBC mp has uh, um sort of lost her position over that her her lawyer has told the paper her position is that she's innocent she's got nothing to do with uh, alleged bribery but um there seem to be still huge numbers of of raids going on and people are really raising questions as to, you know, what people are doing with large sums of cash, where it might have come from and what this means in terms of the European Parliament more generally and whether there is a, a um, a broader problem with potential corruption.
0: Exactly. As Politico has been writing, there are some EU officials who are adamant that the qatar corruption broke concerns only a few individuals but others are saying that this rot may go much deeper
5: yes i mean that is the question that people are asking according to politico here because they're saying that so far you know, there's been several raids um that you know although people have said this only involves a few individuals belgian police carried out another series of raids 19 residences and offices searched in addition to the european parliament so far six people arrested and these these piles of euros amount to more than a million euros so far that they have found. And so there are worries within the Parliament and among people who were former MEPs and so on saying that, you know, what if what if this goes further? What if this is really just sort of the tip of the iceberg? And they're quoting um, a former lawmaker who's now running Transparency International, Michiel van Hulten, saying it's quite likely that there are names in this scandal that we haven't heard from yet. There is undue influence on a scale we haven't seen so far. It doesn't need to involve bags of cash. It can involve, for instance, trips to far-flung destinations. And that is a much more widespread problem, he says.
0: Well, Terry, it does sound like you may be back in the studio talking about this story soon again. Thank you for joining us this morning. You are with The Globalist.
4: UBS has over 900 investment analysts
8: from over 100 different countries.
4: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
1: To find out how we could help you,
4: contact us at UBS.com.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle24. I am Marcus Hippi. It's time to talk business now with Monocle's business editor, David Hodari. Good morning and welcome to the programme. Shall we start with 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 a big big trial? Absolutely. First.
8: Yeah, sounds good. Uh, morning to you as well, Marcus. Um, so we start today with um, this this continuing trail uh, of the Wirecard former CEO Marcus Brown, who's currently on trial for, uh, among other things, um, defrauding investors out of billions of euros uh, and. Uh, the trial got going, has gotten going in recent weeks, and even though Brown's had numerous complex charges levelled against him, his lawyer's defence is simply that the prosecutors have the wrong guy, and I'm not making that up. It is quite as simple as that. His lawyers instead are insisting that uh, Oliver Bellenhouse, who was the head of Wirecard's subsidiary in Dubai, uh, and became a witness after turning himself in, is in fact the main perpetrator, and that Bellenhouse is not a credible witness, um, and they've actually gone fu- gone further, filing a motion earlier this week to have the trial suspended, claiming this week that um, prosecutors had failed to properly investigate the case, ignored crucial evidence and relied on flawed testimony to create a pack of lies.
0: It's, it's quite a complex case. Can you tell us a bit more about the broader trial? Brown's not accused on his own, is he?
8: He's not, not by a long shot. So alongside... Uh, Bellenhaus. Brown is also accused alongside with Stefan von Erfer, who was Wirecard's former head of accounting. uh, And he's also accused of fraud, embezzlement, accounting manipulation and market manipulation following Wirecard's collapse a couple of years ago, when the company was discovered to have effectively uh, hidden nearly 2 billion euros uh, in in fake escrow accounts. And there's also Jan Marsalek, who is Wirecard's number two, who's effectively on the run. And uh, Marcus Brown's lawyers are accusing him of having funneled 750 million euros into shell accounts.
0: Let's continue with another interesting business story: the Volkswagen Group and Enel X Way. They have launched their equally owned venture, which is called A Weaver, just this week, and this company is going to build high-power charging network in Italy. Tell us more about this announcement and how significant it is.
8: Sure, so I think the significance is more in what it could lead to rather than what it does in the here and now. So the new JV will build 3,000 high-speed charging points uh, with both VW and NL putting in about 100 million euros each. Um, And those locations will be spread across just, just about five hundred locations by late next year, um, and it'll be a tiny fraction of the forty five thousand that VW plans to build uh, around the world by the middle of the century uh, by the middle of this decade and it 's a tiny uh, proportion of the three and a half million charging points that McKinsey says Europe needs to build by two thousand and thirty
0: let 's continue then with with a story from Monaco's Alpino, which is out now we have a story that's also related to the cost of energy. David, do you want to tell us about how the Oberreggen Ski Resort is navigating the energy crisis this winter?
8: Absolutely. So so you're absolutely right. The Oberreggen Ski Resort is in the Dolomites in Italy. And... Um they're up a mountain. It's very cold. They need to use a lot of energy, um, and energy is very expensive. So they've been putting in uh, millions, of pa- millions of euros in, in investment in the past few years to try and mitigate any, any potential rising cost of energy. And they've built a biomass heating plant that burns waste timber from local sawmills. They're planning on installing solar panels on the roof of that plant. And they've also uh, started to run their 18 ski lifts at a slower pace and reduce nighttime skiing on a few days a week. So it sounds like it doesn't really
0: impact the, the, the customer experience that much. It's still nice to go and enjoy it.
8: Absolutely. And uh, actually, hotel managers in the area have, have um, well, they're, they're not necessarily happy about the, the high cost of energy, but they are happy that uh, guests are spending more time in the hotel bar and in the spa. <laughs> And uh, that can only mean one thing for those uh, hoteliers.
0: Another story from Monaco's Alpino newspaper we have to discuss is is Among the Winter Features. And it's a story about Japan's biggest snowplough maker. It sounds like they'll be in demand at the moment, doesn't it?
8: It does. So I don't know, I don't know about you, but it, you're from Finland. I'm not from Finland. I'm from Manchester, which is rainy rather than snowy. But it surprised me to learn that Japan is actually the world's snowiest country. So it makes sense that there is a rather rich snowplough making industry in japan we featured nichijo in uh, the alpino newspaper this winter and uh, they make these amazing orange and yellow rotary plows with bright red blades and one of the things i was quite pleased to learn about japanese snow plows is that uh, the citizens there are fond of aesthetically piled snow so instead of just moving the snow to the sides of the road in japan nichijo snow plows blast the snow 45 meters away up into the air through a chute And uh, we've got some lovely pictures. If you want to pick up your copy of Alpino anytime soon, you'll find them in there on page 12.
0: Absolutely. I always love the way Japanese do it in in a very thorough and in a very precise way. David Olari, Monaco's business editor, thank you for joining us here on The Globalist. And finally, on today's program, it's time to get a roundup of news from the catwalk with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Nathalie, great to have you join us this morning. Shall we talk about a show that took place in Paris just yesterday by Jacquemus?
9: Morning, Marcus. Yes, so we always say there's always a fashion week or a fashion show somewhere. And Jacquemus is one of those designers that creates his own schedule. So this week, he hosted a show in Paris and uh it's interesting it's it's an interesting one to look at even if you're not interested in the brand because of the theatrics of it and and this time he showed a collection and as the models walked down the catwalk there was literally raffia and straw it it looked like it was raining uh raffia which is a signature material for him and it's just interesting because it shows the power of those traditional catwalk shows for brands even a a young brand like uh, Mouse, Those moments really have helped him uh, go from being a 20-year-old guy with very little money starting out to now building a global brand. And he's taken uh, his audience all around the world, choosing impressive locations like this and creating these moments from a beach in Hawaii earlier this year to the uh, lavender fields in Provence. So, fashion shows are still going and still popular.
0: It's great to hear. Let's let's continue by talking about what's going on with Gucci. A lot of headlines.
9: Yes, there were big news at least for the fashion world this month that the creative director Alessandro Michele exited the business after a really fantastic tenure and who he helped transform the the business from a dusty brand to uh, one of caring's highest earners but uh, the the brand is still releasing some really interesting projects and forging ahead to hold on to that status and one of their more interesting projects was um, they supported an exhibition in Cape Town called When We See Us which looks at black artists' work and how they present themselves in painting but they've also done collaborations with the famous. As London retailer Brown, and just now this week launched a collection of apres ski clothing. So they're very much going ahead and trying to write the next chapter.
0: Sounds 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 really exciting, but time is short. We have to continue with other stories. What's happening in the UK with Selfridges?
9: Selfridges is another interesting uh, business because they're really at the forefront, I think, of. Renewing the look and feel of department stores. There's always pop-ups. There's always something going on. And now with the festive season, they've got a lot of, uh, new pop-up shops within the department store. Uh, as, as soon as you go in, there's one that sells secondhand fashion called Reselfridges, which is promoting better consumption and also they have teamed up with Savile Row tailor Oswald Boateng uh, to create a pop-up space uh, with his suits which are made of really decadent jacquard fabrics which I guess for this time of year it's, it's very fitting.
0: It's great to hear that all these things are happening because obviously we didn't see any of this kind of we didn't see any catwalk shows we didn't see any pop-ups during the pandemic years and now all of a sudden there's as you mentioned a lot's going a lot, lot going on in in the, bis- in the in the fashion world but let's continue with one interesting IPO a bit more business story
9: Yeah, I mean, this translates that the appetite in fashion has translated into increased revenues for a lot of this business and the Lanvan Group, which owns brands like Lanvan, but also Sergio Rossi and Wolford in the last year has seen its revenues go up around 73%. And uh, this week has got the clear and will be listing uh, in the New York Stock Exchange on Thursday, which is quite interesting because... No fashion business has listed in America this year, uh, and there there was an overall slowdown, especially with direct-to-consumer brands filing for an IPO, but seeing their valuations really deflate. Uh, brand, I'm, I'm thinking of brands like Warby Parker and Allbirds, but it's quite a positive development that uh, the Lanvin Group is going to now be listed uh, and it's it's going to Wall Street and we're going to be seeing Prada as well in the new year move from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to Milan in a valuation that is uh, approximately a billion. So a a lot of growth across the fashion sector.
0: Let's finish today's fashion roundup by talking about alpine fashion. I do understand that brands are now really pushing into the skiwear business.
9: Exactly. Again, in the spirit of diversifying and keeping the revenues high skiwear is, is a really growing business and uh, of course luxury brands want to have a slice of that pie everyone from Armani uh, who has relaunched his Neve line which uh, is a skiwear uh, uh, secondary line that he initially had in the 1990s and it was launched with a fashion show on the slopes of St. Moritz earlier this week and there will he will be having travelling pop-ups in Megev, Verbier. Courchevel all the way to April, Xenia, the Italian tailoring brand, has launched a dedicated outdoors collection with a lot of puffer jackets and skiwear essentials. And one of the most fun ones is Emilio Pucci, Mm -hmm. uh, which has put its signature patterns over ski suits and trousers and launched the collection again in St. Moritz, which clearly is really popular with a German retailer, my Teresa, and they had a big party, which from what I heard was really fun. It included table dancing after the skiing, a lot of fondue and big celebrations.
0: There's so much going on in the fashion world. Does the fashion world take a Christmas break? What do you reckon?
9: I think so, but it will then come back in full force in January with a fresh round of menswear shows and and womenswear shows in February. And I think there's appetite for events more than ever
0: And you have a busy year ahead as well mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us, that was Monaco's fashion editor Natalie Theodossi And that's all for today's programme Thanks to our producers Emma Schoel and Sophie Moran coombs Our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager Christy O'Grady After the headlines, there is more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I am Marcus Hippi Thanks for tuning in